Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Unravel. Joy here with a friend of the show, friend of us, and uh, just all-around great person, Elizabeth Way. Hi, Liz. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And Elizabeth Way is the Assistant Curator of Costume at the Museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology. Um, when it is attached to the school, my alma mater for grad school, um, and she has worked on multiple exhibitions, including Global Fashion Capitals and Black Fashion Designers, and uh, it's just a pleasure to have you here. I feel like it's taken a really long time for us to get you on the show, uh, and so I'm just so, so excited for this moment. And so I just wanted to hop right into the questions, if you don't, if you don't mind, just try to get right to it. And my first question is, how did you get into the study of fashion history? I feel like we get this question a lot from um, our fans. I feel like this question comes up all the time in general. So yes, no, people always ask me this. Um, so I was interested in fashion as you know a preteen, a teenager. I think a lot of us are kind of drawn initially to fashion just because we love the clothes. I love Vogue magazine. I read yes. it cover to cover every month. Um, and I was also really interested in history. But when I went to college, I decided to major in apparel design. I went to the University of Delaware. Um, and I want to be a fashion designer. I also majored in history just because I loved it. It was kind of like my fun major. Yeah. Um, but I graduated in 08. It was not a great time to find a job. And so I decided to focus on pattern making. By the time I graduated, I knew I wasn't going to be a designer, a head designer. Um, that was not in the car train, but I loved pattern making. So mm. I um, did a short course at Central St. Martin's in London in creative pattern cutting. And then I came back and very briefly worked as a pattern cutter in the New York industry, like a month, very, very briefly. Um, because of, you know, the economy at the time, it was hard for me to keep a job, but I also discovered I didn't really like the industry very much at all. And I wanted something that incorporated a little bit more history into fashion. So I went back to the University of Delaware and I got a job at their costume shop for their, they have an MA program in acting and stage management, but they have a professional costume shop that supports that program. And so I got a job as a stitcher and then eventually as an assistant costume designer. So that was really fun. Um, but, you know, I also discovered costume design wasn't really for me either. You know, costume design, it's all about, it's about art. It's about serving the play. It's about serving the vision of the director. It's not necessarily about being historically accurate, which it's not, right. not what it's supposed to be. But um, I wanted something um, else. And that's when I discovered the graduate program at New York University, very similar to your program at FIT. Um, and so I joined and I got my MA in fashion studies, digital culture. And from there, I got my job at FIT. That's amazing that you were able to transition to uh, a job so quickly. I think that this is the only field I've really heard of in the humanities where you can just kind of roll right into your, your job. It's still not a given, right? Like it's still not, it's still not like nothing's a given, especially when it comes to employment, especially right now, but just in general. Um, yeah. But I've heard that a lot that we're able to kind of transfer those skills, maybe skills learned also before, like a lot of the pattern making um, skills that sets that you might have picked up while maybe it didn't go towards pattern making, obviously, like that it does lend itself really nicely to, I think, your role at the museum, but also in just understanding clothes and fit and like how those things transition and what to look for when you're researching. Because I think that was something I learned in grad school. I definitely wouldn't have thought of that, like that could help me date or attribute to a certain designer um, or at least a time period. Yeah experiences have definitely contributed nothing was like kind of wasted it all works towards uh where I am now that's that's awesome um and like I said I think you're well I didn't say it before but I'm gonna say it now I think your role at um MFIT is really unique 
Uh, and I, I wanted you to maybe um, go into that and how that compares to maybe uh, another curatorial role. And if you could explain for us, like what your, your day looks like, um, because it's very, it's very different. And I think it's, it's quite uh, dynamic what you do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's definitely, um, it definitely changes day to day. As far as me being kind of unique as a curator, what we were saying before is my experience as a pattern maker, um, you know, I sew, I make my own clothes sometimes, not a lot. Um, it all kind of contributes to a very specific point of view that I have as a curator. And all of us bring in kind of different points of view. Some um, of us, um, you know, our director is an art history background. Um, you know, we come from all different fields. Fashion is so interdisciplinary. It's right. kind of a new field. So bringing that kind of construction eye to um, my curatorial practice is something that's really all a little different. Our deputy director, Patricia Mears, also has like a really innate understanding of, kind of the way clothes go together and the industry. Um, but, you know, I kind of, I'm kind of drawn to the way things are put together and how they're made. Um, as far as the day-to-day, um, you know, it changes. We interface with the public a lot as curators at FIT. We do not do docent-led tours. So all of our tours are led by curators. So I spend a lot of time with the public um, and also with students at FIT. We get a lot of um, classes coming through for tours. So I'm able to kind of talk to people, go through the galleries on a daily basis um, and give tours to people. Um, I also do a lot of reading, a lot of researching, a lot of trips to the library, which is fortunately only a couple floors up from my office. And I do a lot of writing. We There's a lot of writing associated with our shows. We do books for um, half of our shows and then sometimes more. So reading and writing and researching is a big part. And then when I'm lucky, I get to go into the collection. We have our collections on site, um, which we're very lucky to be able to do that. And so I get to spend some time with objects uh, when I'm not doing anything else. And there also, um, I don't know if this is in your role anymore, but you also, you, you did those teaching engagements with students, right? Do you still do have undertake that? So when I was a curatorial assistant, I was in charge of the study collection, um, which is a big part of the museum. I uh, kind of transitioned out of that role. We have a fabulous new person in charge of that, um, Michelle. Oh, wow. um, she's amazing. But that is, with the study the study collection, no, students from FIT and other students from other schools can come in. The study collection is made to be handled. It's made to be kind of touched. So students really can get some up-close and personal interaction with the objects, which isn't possible at, in the galleries. So it's another resource that we can offer to people. And it's a huge learning tool. The students love it. The professors love it. And it's just another way that you can learn and interact with the clothing. And I think that um, I'm glad that you've transitioned out of that role because you get to do even more of what you want to do, right? And it's it's transitioning from like, um, I think those sorts of, they're just labor intensive. It's just, I've, and I've been as a student and they're labor intensive as a student. So I can only imagine in the preparation of those. So I think it's, I think it's great that you were able to transition out to kind of um, do more of what you want to do and more of the research that you want to do. And we'll get into that in a moment. But um, I wanted you to mention all of that because it's very different than the kind of role that most curators have some do lead tours but it's not like mandated and like you said it's docent led it's volunteer led or it's self self-guided absolutely as a museum we're really interested in making things accessible especially for students it's something we always think about and writing for a gallery is really really different than writing a scholarly paper or writing right. a book you have to keep it short, you have to keep it simple, and we really, it's hard, it's really hard to um, kind of keep our labels short, but we try really hard to do that, so that, because, you know, if we have a hundred objects, or, you know, even less than that in a show, like, that's exhausting, so you want to make sure that, like, you're giving the information that people need to keep them engaged, to make connections, 
but you're not, you can't give them a book at every label and they're never going to make it through. And I think, I think, you know, we, um, we critique the Met a lot around this work and we understand kind of like what their mission is in comparison to maybe a historic society, right? And like how they write their labels and it's all, it's all kind of relative depending on what the space is. But I, I do, um, a lot of the work that's, that has been done in the museum at FIT was an inspiration for me for my curatorial practice because I, like, everyone says, like, no, you really can't do it that way. Like, a lot of museums will say that, like, you can't do it the way that you all do it. And I'm like, they're actively doing it all the time. I should roll back and, and ask, how many shows do you all do a year? Because it's a lot. <laughs> we do, I mean, we are a museum, all told, we are about 30 people, and that includes our conservators, our, um, our production team who puts together the sets, our photographer, our editor, so only about 30 people, and we do um, four full shows a year. And we also support the graduate student show. Um, and so, yeah, it's a lot. It's definitely a breakneck pace uh, for a museum of our size. Well, one, in one way that I think that we're really lucky, um, especially if you think about a place like the Met, which is an art museum, we never have to convince anyone. I've never been in a position trying to convince anyone at FIT that fashion is important, that we should be doing this. Like, we're just a fashion museum, so we already have that understanding. And we're also within FIT, that places a very, obviously, high premium on fashion design. Obviously, there's so many things that you can major in at FIT, but we never have to convince anyone that fashion is important, that it's worthwhile. So we really start from a position of privilege there, but we also have a great um, curatorial team that is, you know, interested in all different things. So we switch off curating shows, and all of us have kind of our passion, but we're also really eager to help each other and work on each other's shows. Um, I co-curate a lot, and so we're able to bring up a lot of different perspectives in and, and we don't want to, you know, kind of do the same thing over and over. We would be bored ourselves if we did that. Um, and we do a lot of shows a year, so there's definitely opportunity to explore a lot of different themes and approach things in different ways. I love it. Um, and thank you thank you for going on that deep dive about the museum, because we haven't really spent a whole lot of time talking about MFIT. You would think we would sing its praises, but for some reason we just haven't, it hasn't come up. We always cite it if there's a show that um, relates to what we're talking about, but we haven't spent time like talking about the collection and how many shows, the breakneck pace, um, and how many shows you all put on. And that, you know, the the space, the study collection is actually open to students. Um, I think that's something, and the, and also the library. Um, and that's not always a given for all institutions, right? So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of places, um, either that I've worked or that I know of, like they just don't. There, people are allowed in, right? I put in quotes, but they're. It's not like there's not like a place for you to sit down. There's like you know you kind of have to navigate all of that by yourself. Um, but you all really like provide access, real access when we talk about accessibility. We try to make that as accessible as possible, even spreading awareness about it. There are some professors who've been coming in forever, but some new professors don't know, so we try to spread that awareness. And we're also really, really lucky that we have the staff to make that open and available because that's a huge, I mean, it's a huge job, um, you know, and so we're really lucky that we can provide that to students and that, you know, we have the staff members to do that. Absolutely. That's a really good point. Staff is important. Um, I do want to shift gears and get into fashion history. And I wanted you to maybe recount some uh, important milestones of Black fashion for our audience. We often just take chunks in our episodes, right? And just like, kind of pull out things. And we'll mention things here and there. But I think you are you are uh, a perfect guest to kind of like run down a small, a small short list of important moments. of African-American culture and fashion is my personal kind of uh, research area. 
And so I first came into it looking at two fashion designers. I wrote my master's thesis about Elizabeth Peckley and Anne Lowe. So Elizabeth Peckley was a designer working in Washington, D.C. in the 1860s. Um, so there have definitely been black fashion designers working in the U.S. long before that. Um, unfortunately, they're not very well documented. Elizabeth Peckley wrote a memoir. We know about her. She um, created uh, dresses for Mary Todd Lincoln, also Brianna Davis, um, Mrs. Jefferson Davis, and a lot of you know the leading social women in D.C. in the Civil War era. So she's a really interesting figure, and there's literature that she wrote um, about herself. There's extant garments. The Smithsonian um, American History has a beautiful velvet, purple velvet gown that she made for the First Lady there. Um, so I think that's a really great milestone. Uh, unfortunately, it's sometimes where we have to start. Um, you know, the 1850s is a late start date when we're thinking about fashion in the United States. And there are other, you know, other sources that we can turn to, but there's a lot of information about Elizabeth Peckley because she herself left it for us. Right. Um, Anne Lowe is another designer that I really really, really am interested in. She worked in the 19, well, she had a huge career, a long career, starting in like the 1910s, 1920s, but she really kind of hit this peak in the 50s and um, late 50s, early 60s. But she also has kind of a White House connection. She made Jackie Kennedy's wedding dress um, in the early 50s, um, but she sewed for kind of what she referred to as the social register. So we think about kind of the richest, wealthiest people in New York and around the country went to her. Um, and she's really important because she kind of marks this change between what we think about as a dressmaker, um, mm, you know, kind mm-hmm. of working in her shop, you know, maybe she employs a few people, but she's taking the measurements, she's designing, she's sewing. She really marks that transition because that's really the way she worked. Her right. grandmother and her mother were both dressmakers. She's from Alabama. Her uh, grandmother was enslaved, as was Elizabeth Peckley. And so we take this idea of enslaved labor and transforming it into free labor. And so Anne Lowe was able to not just make that transformation, but kind of transform into what we think of as a fashion designer in the 1960s. You know, she put labels in her clothes with her own name on them. For a time, she had a salon at Saks Fifth Avenue. So even mm-hmm. though she's making custom dresses, one of a kind, very much in kind of an open tour kind of way, the way she receives press, the way she dresses, the way she presents herself, the way she presents her clothing, it's very much in the way we think of a modern fashion designer. So she's a great moment because she's kind of this pivotal transition. And also her business acumen is, is quite fascinating, right? Like it's, um, especially because, because a lot of this has been written or, or kind of crafted or at least like put somewhere in history where we can kind of trace this business acumen and how you are navigating as a fashion designer, as a woman at that time, but also of course, as, as a black person at the time, um, navigating both Elizabeth Keckley and, um, and, uh, why am I forgetting her name now? <laughs> both Elizabeth Keckley and Anne Lowe both have kids and so it's like navigating all of that at the same time is just um even 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 if it was isolated but just like navigating all of that at the same time is really quite fascinating absolutely to be a black woman in America in the 1860s and the 1950s like those are both very challenging times I mean all times have been challenging for Amen. Black in this country. <laughs> um but they were entrepreneurs they were mothers and they had businesses in which they employed other people, other black women, and Lowe also employed um, men and Absolutely. white women. You know, they're creating jobs for people. And so you can look at their beautiful material culture, the dresses that they made. They're absolutely gorgeous. But they also, there's a story to be told about black women, about black business, about American business. Um, I mean, and this is, we talk about this, fashion is very interdisciplinary. It touches on a lot of um, areas of history and of culture. Absolutely. Yeah, the interdisciplinary stuff will keep you up at night if you are a new scholar. So don't worry, you will get through the fog for sure. Um, but it does it does take that. Thank you for those milestones. They're really, um, and speaking to your kind of earlier scholarship too, as well. 
Um, why do you think, and this leads me to this question, why do you think the 1970s was the best time for best Black fashion? Because I think, or do you agree with that statement, I guess? Because I think that that's heralded as like this big mega time, but I don't know how true that is. And I'm curious. I just want to pick your brain. Well, it was definitely a moment when there was a lot of exposures for, for Black designers in the New York industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you have some really, you have moments where they're getting a lot of press. Even um, Burroughs and Scott Berry were one of the first designers to have national press. Um, it wasn't just WWD, Women's Wear Daily, or Vogue covering them. You know, they're appearing on TV to talk about their design. Um, and of course, Stephen Burroughs was a part of the, the American contingent that showed at the Battle of Versailles, which is a really pivotal right. moment in elevating American fashion. I think that, you know, this there's a lot of black designers working at that time kind of proportionally to the industry, and a larger proportion than were working in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. So um, the industry wasn't as big then, but you, these black designers were part of a moment where um, New York was becoming a fashion capital. It's mm-hmm. hard for us, I think, to imagine now, but like in the 1950s, no one in fashion thought New York was as good as Paris. No one thought anywhere was as good as Paris. And so when you right, that's like that, even that, yes, for sure. In, in 73, you start to get this new attitude in fashion. It's not about open door, it's about ready to wear, it's about the easiness, it's about the sexiness. And American designers are bringing that to the fore, and black designers are a huge part of that. Right. So I think that this was a, you know, a lot of cultural things are coming together. There's a lot more kind of visibility for black people in this country all around. You think about singers and actors, um, politicians, sports stars. So more and more people are interested and um, expecting that black people are visible in society. And so fashion design really goes along with that. Um, but then it's also an extremely exciting, dynamic time for American fashion. So I think those right. two things coming together, and of course these black designers were great. They were doing things that were fresh and sexy and exciting and young, um, and really helping New York become what it was at that point in fashion. So I think a lot of just different things came together um, at that moment. And you know, you have these political movements, black is beautiful, you have you mm-hmm. know black power. And so blackness is becoming kind of visible and valued in a way. And we see this in little spurts, you know, the Harlem Renaissance was another point in this, um, where blackness becomes popular, becomes fashionable. Right. Um, Black designers working long before the 1960s, they've been working since then, but this was a moment where it just became visible um, to the national culture. I appreciate that a lot. Um, Because I hear it a lot, and I would agree for the same reasons that you've stated, but it's it's difficult as a historian to kind of say that, because, like, knowing that there were there was there's I would say there was an explosion in the 2000s of course with like a lot of people take a lot of people of color but black people specifically taking the helm of uh, fashion houses and of course yes the Harlem Renaissance is kind of very 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 pivotal pivotal uh not only nationally in the states but internationally um so it's hard for me to say like the 70s was it uh but I I would agree with you for those same for those same reasons the 1970s was really the first time where we see visible black designers in the American fashion industry as we know it. You know, the mm-hmm. industry changed so much, but like the 1970s is really when we think about the modern fashion industry and and black people were a huge part of it. So I think yeah. that's one reason why it's really looked at as a golden age for black design. I like that too, thinking about the mechanisms of fashion. Uh, my next question, what is, what is one of your favorite projects to work on and why, or to have worked on and why? Um, I do... 
helping and supporting other curators in their work because I learned about things that I would never have picked. And so one of my favorite things that I've written and worked on was a show called Expedition. It was curated by our deputy director, Patricia Mears, and she had this, I mean, this kind of wild idea thinking about how um, exploration has affected fashion. So she looked at, um, you know, kind of safari gear. She looked at parkas, um, which is kind of how she kind of got into this project. And then she was also looking at um, deep sea diving in space. And so space exploration was the chapter that I wrote on. And I took a deep dive in kind of the way space suits were made, how it affected space age fashion. And it wasn't really something I would have ever kind of thought about before, thought about researching before, but it was it was a lot of fun. And I ended up writing this chapter that I, you know, I, I would have never thought of on my own. So that was definitely one of my favorites just because it was so unexpected. I, I love that, that you were kind of thrown into this like new territory. And I think that's a good reminder for the audience to know that like, it's such a new field that like, even if you do a deep dive, the amount of like the source get, like it's still, it still can be quite difficult to do research in our field. Um, if there aren't enough scholars in that particular section working on that, even if it's, even if, because it's interdisciplinary, even if there aren't enough in the other field that's related, if there's not enough there, it's, it becomes very challenging. So um, it's really interesting that you just hopped right in, um, you know? Pulling together a lot of sources from different, from different, uh, from different researchers and different scholars. Um, and then also looking at like the fashion magazines in the 60s, which were really fun too. So oh, yes. definitely, you definitely have to be, you can't just pick up fashion books. You definitely have to go outside of that that realm absolutely great advice too um and i i have a question for you actually that's not adjacent to this it's the pierre cardin um exhibition were you able to go and see it i did see it briefly i was in brooklyn and i was able to like pop in and i had to pop right out and it's it of course he's like the guy um or is is heralded as one of the guys that um was obsessed with space and continued to be like even after it was cool definitely before it was cool but also like after it was cool to kind of be into space he was like nope still gonna explore these concepts so um I was really fascinated by that about that um and how like he held on to those aesthetics or those ideas throughout his work um who I thought was kind of the most exciting. Well, that's not true. So the three space age couturiers were Andre Perez, um, Paco Rabanne, and uh, Pierre Cardin. Actually, all three of them kind of continued some of those ideas throughout their career. Pierre Cardin was obviously the most famous. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there was something about like that time where they really loved those ideas and held on to them because it was, it was all about modernity. And of course, mm-hmm. the farther you get from the 1960s, the less modern it seems to us. But the ideas about it being new and fresh, and a lot of it was about like kind of freeing women from, you know, constricted clothes. And so I think these were ideas that really resonated with them. And so they did stick with it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I have a, I want to shift gears just a little bit again and just talk about your, uh, talk about the pandemic, uh, where we currently are. And we do try to keep these evergreen, but I feel like we're in a moment where we have to mention it from time to time because who knows how long we're going to be in this predicament and how how is it working right now for a museum during the pandemic and how is your like workflow shifted or just like how you work shifted i'm sure like everyone else i like become very acquainted with zoom and video conferencing of all kinds that was not something you know well the thing i miss the most is like being in my office being with the collection definitely but also like having my colleagues so accessible yeah. Pop into someone's office and ask them something, start a conversation, talk to people, see people. 
Um, but I've been really lucky in that I do have a lot of writing to do, a lot of research to do, and so I can do that from home. Um, yeah, that's that's really lucky. Mm-hmm. Other people in our museum have had a, almost some of them have had an impossible time transferring um, to you know transferring their work. You know, our conservation labs and stuff can't be replicated in someone's home. So I've been really lucky in that I've been able to continue to work and. Um, and, you know, kind of keep sane during the pandemic. Right, to keep kind of, because I think keeping a workflow is actually what's helped me. Um, I think if I wasn't working right now, as much as, like, I complain about how how much work I've had on my plate, um, I, I think if I wasn't working, I think that would that would radically shift me psychologically, I think. Um, so, and not to mention, exactly, yeah. And on top of the fact that, you know, money is important. Um <laughs> That's an important, important component of existing in this planet. So um, for for both of those things. And I want to shift right on back just from asking that very poignant uh, current question to um, your new exhibition that was supposed to come out, hasn't come out yet, but will come out called Head to Toe. And I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit more about that. So I'm co-curating this exhibition with my colleague, Melissa Mara Alvarez. And we wanted to look at accessories and how accessories work in the total ensemble. Something that's actually kind of challenging in museums is that, at least at the Museum of FIT, we try not to style mannequins. You know, it's not necess- It's not about kind of how making it look aesthetically. And there are definitely shows like that have happened in the other. Well, there are actually shows that have happened with us. Like we did a show on Daphne Guinness. And right. About, you know, and she helped with that show, so we could style away because that was her. That was an authentic point of view from the person we were studying. But, you know, if we're looking at, you know, uh, 1800s gown, we have to do a lot of research before we decide to put a hat with that or mm-hmm. a, a purse with that or something. You know, we can't just throw things together because they look good. They have to be historically accurate. So for head to toe, we really wanted to take a deep dive into accessories and how they complement outfits, but also what accessories symbolize for women. So we're only looking at women's accessories, and we go from 1800 to um, the present. And we look at how different accessories became popular at different points of time and what they really meant about femininity, about class, about race, um, and how much, you know, fashion is really distilled into these tiny little objects. I love that. Um, and I was wondering why, why it's important for you, for you all to choose accessories as kind of the focal point for the show. Are not focal points, so we wanted to shift um, shift gears. The exhibition is in our history gallery, which is our upstairs gallery, um, and everything in that gallery always is a part of our permanent collection. So it's a way for us to showcase our collection, really make sure it gets out in front of the public. And so we're always looking for new angles. Um, for example, a few years ago, my colleague Emma McClendon did a show on denim, and it was like we have all this denim in the show. Sometimes one or two pieces make it into a show, but let's like let's explore this part of our collection. She's actually really good at that. She did like uniforms um, and other. Um, shows that really utilize under under kind of used parts of the collection. So accessories are one of those. Not as underused as some other aspects, but we really want to focus on the accessories. And so we have we only have I think about sixty garments or ensembles in the show. And we have over two hundred accessories. Wow. Yeah. And can you? We wanted to look at them. And and can you describe kind of the purpose of the history gallery and what makes that kind of unique from um, a traditional space uh, in in a museum? Because it does have a very specific set of rules, right? Absolutely. So this is um, this is a space where we can really reach out to, especially the students at FIT. We're always showing a chronology of fashion. 
So it's sometimes it's like almost 300 years of fashion. We have pieces going back to the late 18th um, century. Sometimes it starts a little um, more recently. For example, when I did black fashion designers with my co-curator, Ariel Alaya, we only had the material culture to go back to the 1950s. So chronologically speaking, that was a very short kind of show for us. Um, for head to toe, we're starting in 1800, but we're always showing a progression of fashion over time. So students can walk into that gallery and see how fashion has changed. Um, and so that gives them a little bit of a timeline. We explore a lot of different themes. Um, so it's always different when you walk in, but we always can put historical fashion on display, um, which is important for us because, you know, yeah. we do contemporary shows. We do sometimes in our downstairs special exhibitions gallery. Sometimes it's historical, sometimes it's contemporary, sometimes it's a mix, but at least um, upstairs, um, you get a little bit of a fashion chronology. And I think it's it's important, and that's why I'm going to encourage more people to go go to uh, MFIT when you're in New York, or if you are currently in New York um, when it reopens, um, to and even go to the website because there is even some great um, online um, exhibitions. I like the way you all actually executed a real exhibition. A lot of people are like, it's a, it's an exhibition, and it's like, no, that's just like a slideshow. Um, as many images as we can take in the gallery on our website, a lot of the text is always on there. We have a fabulous uh, digital media team. And so every exhibition, at least, I mean, almost every exhibition, probably going back at least 10, 20 years, if not earlier, um, is cataloged as an online exhibition on the website. So definitely check it out. There's lots there. Which is remarkable. Um, and, and the reason I, I always gear people towards history, it might not be the, like the splashiest, right? Because it has like that very specific mandate, but you get so much information in such a short period of time and you all have going back to how you articulate, uh, the vision for the, for the particular exhibition, you, you have a way of not talking down to the person, but also like anybody can get something out of those exhibitions and truly like get a history, a fashion history lesson. So it's almost like them going to a class and, and making it fun. It's not so, even though it's chronological, it's not making it kind of like in 1952, this happened and, you know, kind of being sort of regimented. So everyone should check it out when it reopens, but definitely go on to the website because there's plenty of exhibitions that were showcased in that, um, in that space, in that gallery that are up there. That's great. Uh, are there, can you maybe speak to, I didn't add this to our questions. It's a special question, but do you have any uh, favorite accessories? In the show, we were able to kind of showcase some accessories that we, I don't think that we would have a chance. Like, we have a pair of eyeglasses from, like, the 1820s. Wow. Um, which are kind of, like, funky and cool. Um, i trying to think of what else we have. Um, I really liked, I did a case of 1920s and 30s shoes, and they're absolutely beautiful. I mean, shoes are such an important accessory now, but before the 20s, like, headlines were not very short, so people didn't need super fancy shoes. Um, there are, were, like, you know, really formal shoes that were still very beautiful, but in the 20s and 30s, you had really fabulous shoes. We were able to include, like, these brightly colored stockings, but also little um, clips that people would add to their shoes um, to help, like, dress them up. And so those were some really beautiful objects. And parasols, we were able to um, display some parasols and gloves. Oh, um, wonderful. So I, I have too many, too. So it, it's always like that. It, be, it becomes like you can't pick your favorite child sort of scenario. And I, I have a question around how we as humans moving through the world, but also historically, have do you think that we've taken accessories for granted? Do you feel like they're... Because we kind of like use them as a fashion accessory, but I feel like it's just like it's 
in this using something as a necessary has actually become a pejorative, right? Like some people use their dogs as accessories. Some people use their kids as accessories. And so I feel like we've kind of, it's shifted a lot. And I'm just curious, just your general, we're having a theoretical question here about like, if you think accessories have been taken for granted. I think people pay a lot more attention to accessories now than they, than maybe they used to. It's hard Mm -hmm. to say. It's hard to say because, um, you look at accessories from the, from like the 18th century, the 19th century, things like fans and parasols, these were really high luxury items. And mm-hmm. you know, women would hold them in their hands and they could kind of use them to create movement or, you know, shade their face or reveal their face. It was all about this kind of gesture. Anything mm-hmm. in your hand is so much about the gesture and the, the fashionability of that gesture. So in that way, they were pretty front and center. Um, but again, like, you know, historically, shoes were not that important until we get to the 20s. And, you know, fans have become much less, less important. So there's different moments where different accessories are um, popular and important. But I do think there's always, like, some little accessory that's really um, kind of speaking about life and culture in that moment. Exactly. Then, yeah. Since the turn of, like, I would say maybe the late 20th century, the 80s, 90s, especially 2000s, bags and shoes, I think, have completely taken over um, any other kind of accessory. Agreed. And, Fashion houses really push these kind of items because um, the markup is higher than on clothes. They sell better than clothes, um, especially bags. So I think there's a lot of emphasis placed on accessories now. And even like you say, like people using their dogs and their kids, like it kind of shows how accessories are this really pivotal object. We obviously don't want to like people or things to be accessories. Right. How it is this position of, you know, um, of of attention that people are looking at it. It's a way to display a lot of different concepts. Right. Whether that's like luxury or non-luxury, right? Because there's always that like a counterintuitive relationship now with luxury, right? Is like, um, you could be wearing a boiler suit and, uh, definitely could be Carhartt or it could be Celine. Who knows? Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's just like a boiler suit that any mechanic would be wearing, but it could be, it could be $50. It could be 5,000 maybe. Who knows? Yeah, there's definitely a huge range that you can play with, um, but it's all about personal expression. You know, mm-hmm. especially now, fashion is so much about individuality and how do I express my personality. So accessories are really um, kind of, in some ways, more flexible ways to do that than clothing. Absolutely. I'm going to shift one more time, I think for the last time. Um, but I was really, in doing research for the show, it's so weird in, like, it's so weird researching your friends. I just have to say, so I just want to make that note. It's like really weird to be like, what have you been up to? So I make sure that I hit all these points and questions. <laughs> Very strange. I came across a page six article. So you got um, interviewed in page six, scandalous. And um, you talked about opera gloves. And the, it was really, it. that's what really drew my eye. Because usually I'd be like, oh, she's probably just commenting on a, some salacious thing related to an object. And it's, like, related to a show. And it's, like, no, they, like, specifically wanted to do a, uh article on opera gloves. And so that, like, that astounded me that they were interested in doing some sort of, like, fashion historical article. Um, but you talked a lot about opera gloves, gloves there. Um, and why do you think they are important now? Well, the, uh, the reporter on the article wanted me to comment on the appearance of opera gloves on red carpet and mm. why this was kind of coming back. And so... Um, you know, she didn't seek me out personally. What she does is she contacts, like, when a reporter like this wants to comment on a historical fashion or a fashion moment, they contact the press office at FIT, 
and they contact us because we were doing head to toe. Um, our press office asked me if I had anything to say, if I'd be willing to comment, and I agreed. And um, so it was a little, you know, I tried to like put my to give the knowledge that I have. Like I'm not a Hollywood stylist. I'm not privy to why actresses are um, kind of um, loving off their gloves at the moment. But right. About historically and what they kind of represent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Hollywood, opera girls are very old Hollywood. We think about Marilyn Monroe and like 1950s, but then, you know, the 50s are referencing um, the 19th century. Right. Yeah, you know, gloves are all about kind of um, ladyhood and femininity and delicacy. Um, and then glamour, and they really picked up this idea of glamour in the 50s. So I think that's really what Hollywood actresses were kind of um, picking up on in the opera glove trend. I think that's really funny because I didn't really, I hadn't thought about it, but in looking at that article, I saw so many familiar images. So I definitely had seen the images, but it didn't dawn on me. And then reading the article, I was like, yeah, this is, this is weird. Um, especially as a fashion historian to see uh, an accessory. Again, I think I, I surely do because it's not, it's not really um, what I research, but I think I take accessories for research, uh, for, for granted in my research. And so it was like, yeah, this is a weird Weird accessory to come back. I feel like pocket watches also would be a weird accessory to come back. Uh, but definitely opera gloves is a weird one. I think it's like maybe a reaction, you know, to modernity or technology. I think sure. sometimes people have a little bit of nostalgia um, in that. So I think these are cycles and things like pocket watches will probably <laughs> will come back. Probably in Brooklyn first and then like... <laughs> emanating from there. I'm just, um, like, imagining, like, a rapper having, like, a pocket watch. It just, like, that whole trend just exploding. There's something very kind of uh, nostalgic but also glamorous about kind of, like, the niceties of dressing in the past. You know, I'm sure that someone from, like, the 20s and 30s would be amazed at how comfortable we all are today. I'm sure they would be, you know, like, this is, and, you know, especially men suiting in the past was not as comfortable as, you know, a pair of Absolutely. Um, and I, <laughs> I, when thinking of when thinking about questions for for this particular episode, I it kind of t- sent me on a tailspin for accessories. And you know, we do our uh, fashion and focus, and I was like, we need to focus more on accessories because we definitely have taken them for granted, and we have spent actually quite a bit of time talking about accessories in that um, sort of segment. Um, but I realized like that's that's we really should be fleshing more of these out. We really should be. Um, Citing you and um, other other scholars from uh, Enfit and uh, thinking about like the work that they've already done because you all have a pretty impressive uh, accessories collection. It's pretty extensive. We do. Um, one of my colleagues, our curator Colleen Hill, was our is our accessories curator. Um, she does a lot of other things, but she um, she also is kind of our expert on accessories as well. So she's done a lot of research. Um, she has helped work on. We did a previous shoe exhibition. She and Valerie both curated that, and then um, and we have an upcoming shoe exhibition and a book. So shoes yeah. are, you know, probably the I don't know handbag shoes. Shoes are very very important uh, accessories today. Um, definitely statement pieces, and so we definitely Colleen and Valerie both have looked into a lot to kind of the psychological um, mm. meaning of shoes and why women wear shoes, the shoes they wear. <laughs> There's definitely a lot 
there there is a lot with shoes um there's a lot and the different types of shoes and the origins of said shoes that could be a whole other episode uh maybe we should have you back to just only talk about shoes uh because i feel like it could take three episodes maybe um it just it, I mean, there's a whole museum in Toronto. Uh, Bada Shoe. Bada Shoe Museum, so there's definitely a lot there. Absolutely. And what what new projects are you working on right now? Well, next year I have a book coming out, uh, which you very graciously wrote a chapter for me on. I um, did. Yeah. <laughs> I have a book called Black Fashion Designers in American, no, Black Designers in American Fashion. Um, it's being published by it should be released um, next summer. So I'm very, very excited. I'm um, on the tail end of kind of finishing that, um, finishing up all the details for that and getting that off to um, the publisher. Um, and then we have upcoming shows um, at the museum at FIT. Head to toe will eventually um, open. We're not really sure when yet, um, but that will be the next show of mine um, and Melissa that comes out. And then she and I are also co-curating a show on food and fashion. Oh, um, wonderful. That will be happening in the next couple of years, so we're definitely working on that. There'll, there'll be a book for that and um, and an wow. exhibition. So we're kind of keeping keeping, keeping busy. <laughs> And I just want to mention for those, I've said it in uh, email form, but I'm just going to embarrass you now and say that you were an extraordinary editor on that project. And I'm really excited for it to come out. I'm also excited about who you pulled together for this project, because that alone was impressive, Um, was just the talent that you pulled and the scholars that you pulled and the subjects that you pulled together for this book. So not to tease it too much, but it's coming. It'll be summer before you know it. We're in summer right now, but like, honestly, (laughs) if we're all still in the house... It's awesome. I I would love for us to do like an event together to all come together. I know, we all have to get together. Because it's I you know, there's been very few publications of this kind and so um it's just it's just a gift. So we're just I just, you know, just to tease it and talk it up as much as possible before we even officially uh pronounce it to the world, I guess. And yeah. just just lastly, where can we find your work? We'll link your LinkedIn. That's what we'll do in the show notes. I think it's okay. I also think that because you put yourself out there for um, articles and also like you do our show, but you also like are, are in the press often, like with your kind of like just, you know, stating your voice and uh, the voice of, of MFIT. So you're out here, even though you're not like out here tradition, like in the now traditional sense, you're kind of like out here still in the evening. That's true. And I do appear on the museum, like um, I've given talks that the museum have put up on YouTube and like my shows 
um, are on, you know, on the museum website. So MFIT is a good platform for getting me out there um, through no work of my own. But it's great. That's the best kind of work. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> when it's not through the work of your own, it's great. When people do it for you, it's fantastic. Um, thank you, thank you so much, Liz, for for sitting down with us. I'm so glad we could make this happen. Um, I'm so. I think it's it's like the 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 pandemic has brought so much chaos and and torment. But like, I've been able to like sit and talk with friends. Um, of course, I'm sitting in Baltimore. I haven't seen you in person in so long, and so it's so good to see you. Yeah, yeah exactly. That is a, a tiny little silver lining is that I am connecting with friends. You know, I, normally I just wait till we got together in person. But right. Now it's like we don't know what that is. So let's get, to, let's get on a video call. And we were, I mean, and you were able, I mean, it goes without saying going back to your book, it, you were able to <laughs> manifest that book all online. Like there really weren't a whole lot of like big Zoom meetings with everybody. There really isn't, like, you were really, like, doing that m- almost solely through phone call and email, and maybe mostly email. And so I just want to, like, that's that's intense. That, that, <laughs> that in and of itself, I'm just impressed with how people are able to get new projects done in this, in this uh, environment. Yeah, I mean, like, people finally have time to think about things. And, you know, email, video, like, we're really, really, we're more connected than we ever have been. So it's I know, I know. Well, I look forward to the day where I can see you actually face to face. We could cheers yeah. and have a drink and yeah. just uh, relax. What What is that? I don't know, but we will find it uh, when we see each other again. Uh, I want to thank our audience for sitting with us. Um, and uh, you really should take check out MFIT. We will be linking that in all of our show notes. And of course, if you haven't checked out our website, it's Unravel podcast.com www.unravelpodcast.com we got a patreon of the same name patreon.com slash unravel podcast and we're on instagram and facebook at the same name and you should go and check that out and uh yeah with our patreon you pay one dollar you get a whole boatload of content and uh yeah we'll see you in the next show thank you so much liz cheers